Hello and welcome to this week's episode of That One Time I Dated a Mormon. I hope that you are well, I hope that you've had a very good week. Um, this week I am going to get straight into the topic and last week I looked at the continuing overarching trend of uh, social media, film and books in general and the recent upsurge in the wellbeing industry to focus on weight and appearance. That's nothing new. Um, And the obsession with looking a certain way and having a certain weight and appearance is, you know, it's it's been around for the entirety of my lifetime, I'm sure much long, much before that. And, you know, when I'm gone. Um, And when I was continuing to think about that topic this week, it made me look at the presentation of women in the media in general and how women are presented in TV and women in film and how they're presented both positively um, and how they're presented negatively or negative representations or positive representations or just success stories as well or where there are examples of sexism, misogyny, racism still occurring within the industry and how that then trickles down into um, our society and the everyday that you know people like you and me have to then um, pull up with, consolidate um, and somehow get our heads around. And there are a few stories over the last week or so that have just cropped up and then ones that I've gone back and researched that I'm going to talk about today. Um, so a couple of things this week that just sparked my, well, continued interest in this topic. It's something I always talk about and advocate for is um, the representation of women and diverse women. Um, are the two very different reactions to um, women at the Grammys this week? So um, I'm sure you will have heard that Beyonce quite deservingly, has uh, now become the most decorated Grammy winner of all time with, um, I think she got four additional wins at the ceremony at the weekend. So she's won the most Grammys of any artist ever. And I don't think that it can be um, overstated the importance of that, that a woman of colour has now become the most decorated musician of all time. I think that's really quite a powerful thing for us to, you know, take stock of and acknowledge. Um, And, you know, even this week, she's announced her tour and it's, you know, set records for sales and ticket sales and ticket prices and all the rest of it. Um, But then on the other side of the spectrum, you then have the reaction to Madonna at the Grammys as well. Um, now, you know, Madonna's always courted controversy. I think it's something that she quite enjoys doing. You know, she likes testing the boundaries and she likes seeing what she can get away with. And I think using it as a mirror back to society, you know, she does something so that she can see the reaction she gets so she can really call out then what how it is people, you know, treat her. Um, and... I'm not sure if you will have seen in the news this week, but there was a lot of discussion online about her appearance and work that she'll have had um, done to her face, plastic surgery, etc. And, you know, I don't think it's a secret that plastic surgery and work is part of the Hollywood machine, unfortunately. But um, essentially the entire... um, reaction to her being on stage is not that she's 
you know, uh, releasing a new uh, tour th this year and at her age, like what a phenomenal thing to still be able to do. That for a lot of the people who were winning and nominated that night, she would have inspired and set the pathway for, that she looks incredibly fit and healthy, that she's in her fourth decade of a career, which is far longer than a lot of other men and women have ever lasted for. But instead, most people decided to comment on her appearance, on the face that she's you know, now got, which is new, supposedly. Um, and it was all over the news the next day, lots of trolling and things that she got for her appearance. And she um, posted on Instagram because she obviously wanted to then comment on what had been commented on about her. And she said on her Instagram post, quote, um, I've been caught in the glare of ageism and misogyny. It was an honour for me to introduce Kim Petras and Sam Smith at the Grammys. I wanted to give the last award, which is Album of the Year, but I thought it was more important that I present the first trans woman performing at the Grammys, a history-making moment, and on top of that, she won the Grammy. Instead of focusing on what I said in my speech, which is about giving thanks for the fearlessness of artists like Sam and Kim, many people chose only to talk about the close-up photos of me taken with a long-lens camera by a press photographer that would distort anyone's face. Once again, I am caught in the glare of ageism and misogyny that permeates the world we live in, a world that refuses to celebrate women past the age of 45 and feels the need to punish her if she continues to be strong-willed, hard-working and adventurous. Um, and then she continues to say, I've never apologised for any of the creative choices I've made, nor the start, sorry, nor the way that I look or dress and I'm not going to start. I've been degraded by the media since the beginning of my career, but I understand that all this is a test and I'm happy to do the trailblazing so that all women behind me can have an easier time in the years to come. In the words of Beyonce, you won't break my soul. I look forward to many more years of subversive behaviour, pushing boundaries, standing up to the patriarchy, and most of all, enjoying my life. Bow down, bitches. Um, and, you know, on one hand, I think that it's good that she's come out and spoken about that and said that, but it's also very sad and very telling of how little society has moved if she's still having to do that, you know. She's a, a successful woman working in a very male-driven, white male-driven business. And because that she hasn't, you know, kind of submissively slunk away decades ago, um, whenever she does anything slightly that people don't like, then she's just fed to the wolves, isn't she? Um, and so that was, you know, just two contrasting stories that just made me think of how difficult it is to continue to be a woman because you're either lauded or you're completely battered um, and there's no real middle ground. Um, you know, the other successes, Viola Davis um, got her final award to become an EGOT winner. And I think Jennifer Hudson did the same last year or the, or the year before. Um, and then thinking about how um, women were uh, re reacted to or the response they got at the Grammys this week, um, I read back around the reaction to nominations at the Oscars um, last week or the week before as well when they came out, and particularly the reaction to the lack of black actresses and black actors in the lead categories and the lack of a nomination for Daniel Deadweiler as well. 
Now, when that um, first happened, the main kind of shock of the reaction was that Andrea Riseborough was nominated um, in place of Daniel Deadweiler. And I think that um, there's a lot of questions around the nomination there, whether it was kind of bought by celebrity friends, which is, it does seem a little bit um, of a cynical cynically uh, is that a word cynically yes it is um cyn- I mean, i've only been to university um cynically bought no i don't know if bought's the right word it's just a bit of a strange situation anyway but the um, reaction to the fact that that was then in the place of daniel deadweiler um in till who um i mean it's a phenomenal performance it is if you haven't seen it, i suggest that you do um the director of the film came out it was the either the day of or the day after and said that um hollywood <laughs> has quote unabashed misogyny towards black women um and essentially, you know, stating that um, there's still so much more work to be done to make sure that there is equal representation within the industry, not just in kind of the Oscars nomination process, but the in, the, the, the industry as a whole. And the director continued to write, uh, quote, we live in a world and work in industries that are so aggressively committed to upholding whiteness and perpetuating an unabashed misogyny towards black women. And yet I am forever in gratitude for the greatest lessons of my life. Um, And then the actress who was snubbed and and wasn't nominated Uh, there was an article released um at the bbc just earlier this week with daniel deadweiler and she herself speaks out and says again quote that there is um hollywood sorry if you just heard what sound like an exploding motorbike go by um the hollywood is quote deeply impacted by racism um, the article says that she missed out on the nomination, as did Viola Davis, who was widely tipped to be in the running as well. And um, it was an interview on BBC's Woman's Hour Radio 4, and she says, Cinematic history is 100 plus years old. I would dare say the system is deeply, deeply impacted by systemic racism that has shaped our country. And if we are still dealing with systemic racism in this country, that is leading us to losses such as Tyre Nichols, that carries us from the loss of Emmett. There is a trickle-down effect of how racism impacts our lives from the educational system to the film industry to everything any part of american life um and then she um, continued to say there's value to what the director said and the comments i just uh, read a moment ago and it's imperative that every quality of our life begin to truly deeply interrogate and shift rupture and radically shift the way they seek to actually be an institution um and you know again it's, it's the difficult it's not difficult at all it's it's just the, the the conversation around when something like this happens it needs to be spoken about but it shouldn't need to be spoken about at all um and you know you need to think that you know yet again you've got little girls of colour not seeing themselves represented, you know, young men of colour not seeing themselves represented. And when they are, it tends to be in supporting categories. So not the lead, not the most important, not front and centre. And it just, you know, doesn't sit particularly well. Um, And then, you know, on the other hand, you've got Michelle Yeoh, who's the first Asian actress to be nominated, uh, which one is progress. And I um, you know, I, I presume that she will win. Um, but then that's also 
not progress because it's 2022 and the Oscars have been around since the 1930s at least. Um, so if it's taken nearly 100 years for an Asian woman to be nominated in that category, is that really something we can call progress or not? It shouldn't have really taken that long, should we? Should it? Uh, I mean, even just going back a few years ago when Aquafina, um, um, if you haven't seen Aquafina in, in Queens, from Queens, by the way, watch it. Um, but for her film, I think it's called The Farewell. Um, she won the Golden Globe and then was just ignored at the Oscars as well. So it definitely is, uh, the, you know, it's, it's an undeniable issue. Um, I also then looked at some data around the Oscars as well and the representation of women in terms of the awards that have happened and been given out. So this was back in 2015 and obviously there have been eight or there will be by March eight um, ceremonies post them. But in an article written by Alice Corona in 2015 for medium.com, she looked at some of the data from when the Oscars started and from the start of the Oscars to 2015, in the 87 years of the Oscars, only 16% of nominees had been women. And that's including the actress categories. So all the other categories, you know, you're thinking about screenwriter, editing, special effects, music, original song, director, all of those categories, only 16% of the nominees had ever been women. Um and as of 2015, she writes that the um, the gap between the equality is actually is only getting worse. Um, says that the highest percentage of female nominees at the time of this being written, remember, in 2015, was in 1995, 26% of the nominees were female. But um, that then got even lower over time. So by 2009, it dropped to um, 16%. And at the time of this article being written in 2015, it was 17% of nominees being women, again, across all of the categories. Um, and she goes into a bit more detail in terms of award by award as well. So, for example, for animated feature film, 93% um, of uh, candidates being nominated or won have been men. In cinematography, um, there have been 637 candidates nominated for cinematography. There's been not a single woman nominated for cinematography as of 2015. Um, directing, as of 2015, there'd only been one female win, Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker, and then only uh, four other nominees. Obviously, since this article being written, there have been further female nominees, such as Greta Gerwig, and then two female wins um, for Chloe Chow and Jane Campion, who had been nominated previously as well. I believe Catherine Bigelow had been nominated again since as well, I think for Zero Dark Thirty. Um, for special effects, um, out of 661 nominees, only six of them had been female, which is less than 1%. Um, and it's only in, apart from obviously the actress categories, the only categories where women have more nominations than men are stereotypically what you would assume would be female-led industries. So costume design and makeup, where in costume design, women have 55% of the nominees and 58% of the winners. Um, but even there, I mean, you know, 55% is pretty much an even split, isn't it? I mean, even that's not heavily weighed towards uh, women in the industry. Um, and then I was looking at, um, you know, something more 
positive uh, in terms of representation of women on on screen as well and I was when I was reading around this I came across an article about The Apprentice this year and I've not seen The Apprentice for years I know it's very popular and um, I used to watch it you know years ago when I was in a house share at uni and whatever but um God, probably when it's like in his first year, that makes me sound old. But The Apprentice this year, um, one of the main talk talking points was around the receptionist that you never see, or if you do, that you see like a very brief shot of them as they're picking up the phone to let the, you know, nervous candidates go through to the lion's den. And um, the reason that the uh, series this year um, was... Uh, kind of celebrated was the fact that for the first time there was a receptionist of colour uh, working for uh, Alan, I was going to say Alan Shearer then, I mean Alan Sugar. Um, so uh, Khadija Khan and she um, spoke to BBC and she says that even though she's not actually a real receptionist, she does work in the corporate world and is a model um, and then she was just hired to be the receptionist. So I, I thought they were like an actual person who worked for them. I don't realise it was like an actress. But um, it's been praised because she's uh, wearing a, a, a hijab on the show and um, it's... Um, she says it's been very supportive and so many girls and men of colour have been coming forward to tell me how happy they are about it. Um, and when she was talking about why she felt it was important that she had been given the role, I mean, it's a very small role, but it's still, if you think that she's almost like the um, the the gatekeeper to allowing people in and out to... Alan Sugar's office. Um, she says, London is very diverse, but it's not always reflected on TV, and that's a barrier. But barriers can be broken because of the day and age that we now live in. And just me being on the show as a receptionist, even though there's a couple of seconds, shows this. For me, it shows younger girls who wear a hijab, who do not wear a hijab, that anything is possible, no matter who you are uh, and no matter your background. Um, and, you know, again, yes, that's good that there's, there's forward thinking there. But again, it's 2022. Should it be such a big talking point that um, a woman wearing a hijab is shown on The Apprentice for three seconds and says about two words? No, I mean, it is that movement. Yes, on one hand it is. But is it enough? No. Um, and just going back to the film industry for a moment. Um, I'm, again, I'm not sure if you'll be aware of a, um, well kind of quote for want of a better word award show the Razzies which award the worst in film um and you know it, it's quite comical it's tongue-in-cheek and it takes the piss out of things that have just been diabolical like you know 50 shades one always would win but worst picture twilight would always win like the worst acting categories and stuff like that so it is funny but this year um, it caught a controversy because of the age of one of the actresses that was nominated. So it's a, for the film Firestarter, which was a remake of um, the um, original Stephen King-based film with Drew Barrymore, one of her very early roles. And Ryan Kira Armstrong was nominated for Worst Actress. And <coughs> it was being rather criticised because she's only 12. And um, no matter like how bad someone... Um, you know, objectively might be in a performance or how good someone objectively might be. You know, you're not dealing with an adult there who's maybe got the, you know, the nounce and the gravitas and the confidence to bat that off. She's a 12-year-old girl in, you know, what I presume to be is her first major 
role, first major picture, and she's then essentially been called the worst actress of the year publicly in the industry. And understandably, there's been a lot of controversy and backlash about that. Um, and since people have spoken out about it, one of the um, co-founders have come out and they've removed the um, nomination. And they've said, quote, the intent was to be funny. In this particular instance, we seem to have missed it badly. I will admit that. And they've removed the girl from the category. Um, and that, I think... It takes the kind of piss take of the industry one a bit step too far when you're essentially bullying a, a child for what you deem isn't a good enough job. And I don't think that um, it would happen to a younger uh, male actor. Um, I don't think when I've read about um, the Razzies in the past, they've nominated, for want of a better word, a younger male actor before. And it does just seem um, like older men bullying a younger girl, which is just got a horrible um, you know, taste to it. It's just really unpleasant. And if you think that that still happens today in 2022, that very publicly older men bully a younger girl, then, you know, all the progress that, you know, we maybe feel we're making in entertainment industries for women, well, it's it's clearly not having an impact if that is still happening at that public level to a young girl. Um, just to finish off this section of the episode, I'm just going to play you a brief clip from an interview with Drew Barrymore, who talks very openly about her reaction to that nomination and how she really feels that it is bullying on a public scale. Apologize to Armstrong, said in the future, any performer or filmmaker under 18 years of age will not be considered a Razzie. And, and that's he, a I like this. He also says this. It was brought to our attention how insensitive we've been, been as a result. We've removed her name. We also believe a public apology is owed to Ms. Armstrong and wish to say we regret any hurt mm. she experienced as a result of our choices. Now, you, Drew Barrymore, are the only one who was a child actor at this table. And Firestarter. And oh, yeah. Firestarter, too. Fire I had, we what had think Ryan on the show. And oh, you did? Her and yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I just absolutely loved her. I actually have an illustration she drew for me of the two of us and the word fire starter. She could not have been a lovelier person. Talented. Um, she may be lovely, but they're saying her acting wasn't so good. And I'm saying even if that was true, and I don't know, I just think it's unkind to do that to a 12-year-old. You may even get a paycheck, but you're an amateur. You're under the age of 18. Yeah. You're developing. Yeah, I wanted to yeah, know what you think person. about that, Drew, that yeah. she was on the list to begin with. I don't I don't like it. it, yeah. it it's, Why it, don't you like it? Because she is younger, mm -hmm. and it is bullying, and we do want to be cautious about how we speak to or about people because it encourages other people to join on that bandwagon yes. and I'm glad to see people didn't jump on the let's make fun of her wave yes. instead mm -hmm. said this isn't right yeah, yeah. so have I'm, you ever had a Rousey uh, you, you, I, well, I must have. <laughs> no, I should no, have. Has no, anyone seen Doppelganger? <laughs> oh my God! And I was under I've the never age seen of Bad Drewberry more film. Just for the record. Oh my God! <laughs> my cameo in Waxworks too should have warranted one. However, um, Drew would give herself a rap. Yeah, you know, you got to have a sense of humor about yes, yourself. Yes, but when yeah. you're talking about children, children yes. all bets are off. I don't like it. I don't like it. And She's I'm glad they didn't. Well, and they and they apologize. They did. Their credit. They apologize. Yeah. I'm, I'm at over 18, you're a fair game. Yeah.
you waiting? Five girls forever. Um, so that is the opening to Girls Five Ever. Um, if you haven't seen Girls Five Ever, um, you have to pronounce it like that, then I thoroughly suggest that you do. It is so funny. Um, I'd heard of it, but it was on Peacock, and I <laughs> didn't have access to watch it, but it's just been released on Netflix, um, and it is so, so funny to watch it. Um, and I want to speak about this in this the show, in this part of the episode, because this looks at um, women on screen and women on film in a completely different way to how I was talking about, you know, representation in the first part of the episode. So if you're not sure of what the, the show is or haven't heard of it, so essentially it is um, a girl band, girl group called Girl Five, Girls Five Ever, five members, but they're playing on, you know, they're better than four ever, there's five ever. Um, and they were like one hit wonders back in the 90s, the era of um, Spice Girls and things. And they, uh, their biggest hit has just been sampled on a rap song. And so people start questioning, well, whatever happens to that girl group? And they, you know, get back together and reunite and put together an album. And, but obviously it all, you know, goes wrong. And they're constantly like making mistakes with recordings and music videos and gaffes with celebrities. And they're completely out of sync with, you know, modern technology and trying to get, you know, to grips with TikTok and Instagram. It's, it's very funny. And they're all at different parts of their lives as well. So one is, um, you know, married with a kid. Another one now works as a dentist. Um, another um, kind of post videos at her at airports. So it looks like she's got this jet set lifestyle, but she's actually just a luggage handler. <laughs> so that's why she's in the airport all the time. Um, and the other is married with a kid in this enormous mansion, but she never sees a husband. Um, they, they see each other like two weekends a month or something um, and then they just kind of thrown back together out of nostalgia when their song becomes popular again and then decide to work together again um, and I think you know the reason why this show is so good is because it's completely celebratory celebratory why can't I speak celebratory celebratory I'll say that um, of women of of an older age, um, you know, all the characters are in you know, a late thirties, forties plus, um, of different body sizes, different um, social backgrounds. You know, some of them are poorer, some of them are richer, some of them, you know, live. Um, you know, one for example just lives in a in an apartment with a husband and a kid, and who's a um a partner's just teacher. So you know, it looks at women from all different aspects. And um, for you know for different minorities as well, um, how Re uh, Renee Goldsberry hasn't won an Emmy for her performance in it. God, and you know she's so funny. She's got so many one-liners which are brilliant. She's the funniest um, character in it by far, um, and it's got Sarah Bareilles in as well. Um, you may know from some you know music and, and songs and things in the past like Love Song. Is it Love Song? Yes, and it is Renee Goldsberry. God, I thought I'd said her name wrong. Um, but I just really like it because um, it shows, you know, women of an older age of different backgrounds um, just working for, you know, like a common goal and improving their current situation and lifestyle and but not taking themselves seriously. I mean, they do in a comical sense, um, you know, because they want to be continue to be famous and popular, but in a way that is very endearing. 
Um, but a lot of it as well really calls out a lot of the things that you know, women in that industry will have had to put up with over the years. So contracts with the men in charge of them, um, having to um, settle on contracts that they weren't happy with, on deals that they weren't happy with, um, coming back into an industry where, you know, you're not really meant to age over the age of 25, um, having to be, you know, be able to be fit and healthy and perform at a certain age as well. And the lyrics and the songs are very funny and very um, have a lot of commentary about the industry as well. Um, and particularly when they do lots of flashbacks to their songs from the 90s that flopped and the lyrics are very piss take of what was popular at the time. Um, and some of the, the jokes, you know, are quite near the knuckle. So you know, they, base, they they blame the fact that their other singles um, bombed and didn't do very well because their second single is called something like Flying a Plane Into My Heart, and it was released on the 11th of September, September the 11th. Um, and, you know, they they kind of take the mick that, like, that was the biggest tragedy for them of the day. And, um, you know, very funny, but not funny, but also quite amusing at the same time of how self-obsessed they are. But again, like, in quite a, a nice, endearing way when you watch the show as a whole. Um, it's got Tina Fey all over it as well. It's got a lot of that the very same rapid quick fire comedy that 30 rock had um the score is very similar as well and she even i think she's an executive producer on it but she even does a cameo once as well as like a dolly parton hallucination oddly um so girls five ever if you haven't five ever if you haven't watched it i would definitely suggest you go and look at this show just for a nice representation of women on tv that is celebratory so I can say it and is fun and endearing and just puts women really at the front of the show rather than as a supporting character to to a man will you please state your name for the record please welcome Pamela Anderson Mr. Lee, before you met him. I knew he was the drummer for Motley Crue. Did you find him attractive? I like to smile. I still do. We're so good together, pal. To everlasting love. Um, so that's just part of a trailer for Pam and Tommy, which is on Disney Plus at the moment. Um, I think it was released just before summer. Um, and I started watching it because I know that Pamela Anderson has just released a documentary on Netflix. I think she's just released or is due to release um, a memoir as well. And so I thought that um, it just made me interested to watch the show. So it's about the um, release of the sex tape that came out in the in the 90s. And um, I remember I'd probably been about seven or eight when it happened. And I remember or I can recall being aware of them and her particularly being in the news I can't really recall that I knew why, but I just remember her be like her face being everywhere. And obviously, you know, she was the biggest celebrity in the world in Baywatch and the iconic, um, you know, red bathing suits, etc. Um, that she was known for. 
Um, and the show is based on an article that was written in the Rolling Stone in 2014 by Amanda Chicago Lewis. And the headline is Pam and Tommy, the untold story of the world's most infamous sex tape. Porn guns the mob and one very disgruntled electrician. How the superstar couple's most intimate moments went global. Now, watching this, um, it again, just over the last week or so, it again made me think about the representation of women on screen and how they're treated when they're on screen as well and how they're treated by the media in general. So basically the, uh, and you know, obviously there'll be scenes fictionalised within the show and you know, you won't ever know everything is true that happened. But um, an electrician gets fired by Tommy Lee um, and isn't paid for the work that he's done on the house for him and Pamela Anderson. And um, and then isn't given his tools back either, so he's you know completely out of pocket. And to get back at that, he breaks in and um, steals the safe from Tommy Lee's house, rifles through it, you know, to see kind of what money and things he can find. And he finds the tape, plays it, and realizes it's, it's this it's a sex tape from their honeymoon. And um, it's really, I mean, it's very interesting, and it's one of those like bonkers stories where the truth is always stranger than fiction of how everything kind of comes together and all the different parts, rotating parts that, that made it happen. But the really interesting thing about it is how all of the negativity around the tape is put on her and not on him. And numerous times throughout the show, she even says, but it's different for me because I'm a woman. You know, it's different for me to be in the sex tape than you because I'm a woman. You'll just be this hero who slept with Pamela Anderson. You know, I'm the, the whore who's putting out on a sex tape, um, even though it was private for them with no... Um, intention of anyone else ever seeing it and there's one quite poignant moment where um, and again you don't know if it's all real some of it could be fictionalized but um you know they decide to keep the tape because they f believe that when she becomes pregnant that the conception of the baby is on the tape somewhere so they keep it for that reason almost like nostalgia um not that they should have to explain it anyway if it's something private for them but um the real interest in the tape when the man is trying to sell it is all in her. It's all the fact that she's on it, that she's doing these things, that she's this all-American girl who's, you know, sexual and um, you can see her naked and take advantage of her that way and completely sold as a commodity in tape form and online. And from looking at it from a 90s point of view, it's interesting seeing how the internet was back then, um, you know, people were having to get used to dial up just to watch the video, having to get used to use search engines to find something. There are a couple of scenes when people are trying to find it and they don't know what a search engine is. They're having to realise what Yahoo is, um, setting up emails, that type of thing, which obviously now we just take completely for granted, don't we? And how, in a way, it was one of the early um, examples of online internet porn. But again, it was her that was thrown to the wolves and her that was completely pulled apart. There were some brilliant scenes when she's talking to um, a lawyer and being cross-examined because um, she was um, a playgirl bunny, a playboy, is it playboy? Yeah, playboy bunny. And um, and that was incomplete 
a competition with Penthouse magazine and Penthouse magazine got a copy of the tape. So Pamela and Tommy Lee decide to sue Penthouse to stop them from ever using the tape and Penthouse come back at them but actually only actually call her to the stand as a witness and to give a deposition and testimony, not him, even though he's involved in it too. And what they question her about is just so um, unethical and so um, sexist and misogynist with questions that have no relevance to what it is that's actually going on, which is that someone is profiting off of something that doesn't belong to them and is very, very private to them. So, for example, when she's um, giving her deposition and questions to uh, the penthouse team's lawyers they make her watch scenes from the tape back just to make her uncomfortable to make her seem like you know the slut that should be ashamed of being sexual um they question constantly you know did you think that someone could be watching you as you were having sex in this particular location on a boat because if someone else was seeing you do it then, then why are you bothered about someone watching you now on a videotape? And, you know, when was the first time you were ever naked in front of somebody? And do you see yourself as a sex worker? Because you were paid to pose in Playboy. So surely this is no different. Um, you know, you've been paid for sex work before, like, like um, almost making out that her modelling is on the same you know scale as prostitution and therefore the video is just open market and anyone can buy it and she should shut up and not complain about it and um you know you think back in the 90s when any type of sexual allegation the weinstein era would have just been hushed she wouldn't have had a leg to stand on and you know it was her that was thrown all across the press and it was her career that was completely derailed because of it um, you know, now she's older, she's got children. I think it's her son that's made the documentary about it to show his mum in a positive light. And she's able now, you know, in retrospect, to come and talk about it from her point of view and also reveal other things. You know, I didn't know, for example, when I was watching the show that she really struggled to conceive, that she had miscarriages, um, that she'd been in abusive, you know, physically abusive relationships in the past. And then it's just restricted and torn down to this sexual thing that no one had any right to watch or do in the first place. The article that I mentioned before is really quite interesting and it's very factual um, but then you know brings in a lot of um, social commentary and you know what people were saying about the couple at the time. Um, so I'll just read you a little paragraph so it says quote starting in the spring of 1996 as information trickled out about what was on the tape everyone wanted to see it. Whether to gawk at the home life of two superstars or condemn the empty-headed, sex-addicted sex narcissists who presumably leaked it themselves. The couple already had a reputation for carnal and pharmaceutical in indulgence, but peeping on their love play offered an entirely new level of dirty, thrilling violation. As we, leap, as we leapfrog PR, blacks, centerfold photographers and even the paparazzi to land squarely in the most private of worlds. And yet the tape was, without question, physically and illegally taken from Anderson and Lee's home. Recording themselves in the spring and summer of 95, the couple truly didn't know anyone ever was going to see this, so their video has none of the self-conscious posturing of reality TV and social media. Um, and, you know, like, like I said, the, you can go and read the article online if you want to. Um, and... 
it's the basis of, of the show. And I can only imagine that when this came out in 2014, which is nearly 20 years after the thing happened, that must have just really um, brought up, you know, old wounds and old scars for particularly, you know, Pamela Anderson, um, who probably just wanted to be distant from it. Um, but the show, you know, really highlights how still today... Obviously, this happened nearly 30 years ago, but still today, it is the woman's name who's, drug, who's dragged through the mud of any scandal. You know, even with all the scandal around the, you know, Prince Harry book, it's still Meghan Markle's name that's thrown under the bus rather than him as much. Um, so just in terms of another representation of a woman on film, Pam and Tommy, and then um, the Pamela Anderson documentary is a definite um, recommended watch. You know you're like the tenth guy to try this, right? It never works out for the dipshit in the mask. Maybe. But there's never been one like me, Gail. <laughs> I'm something... different. That's why I'm gonna shoot you in the head. And, last of all, I of course have to speak about scream and the representation of women there now this could be an enormous episode on its own and i have looked at female representation in horror films before on a very very early episode back at the start of the um podcast and i just wanted to mention this because obviously scream six is coming out in about a month which is so exciting um there are special double screenings of scream 2022 and scream six if you wish um i think there's some in 3d in america as well I'm not sure how I'd feel about a massive knife coming towards my face, but anyway. Um, the reason I wanted to mention this one is because, and I know I harp on about it, I love Scream. If you don't watch it, then you should, but, you know, get a life. Um, but it's because of the women in the franchise that it stands out so much. Horror has always been um, a real um, support of women. Um, and I'm not talking about the kind of unpleasant torture porn films of Saw, um, but and Hostel, but the real character-led and female character-led horror films like, you know, Halloween um, and the Scream films, obviously, um, and even kind of the lesser films I know we did last summer that have interesting female characters, um, you know, over the two films. Um, but with the current resurgence of, of horror and with Halloween being a big part of that scream now with the newly rebooted sequel to I know it did last summer with Jennifer Love Hewitt returning what's the common thread it's the returning women in the films that make people come back and make the story continue it's Jamie Lee Curtis and Laurie Strode Laurie Strode in Halloween it's Nev Campbell Courtney Cox Sydney and Gale in scream it's Jennifer Love Hewitt Julie James um and if you know they retcon and get rid of the sequel Sarah Shogella um, Helen Shivers in I Know Dead Last Summer somehow, it won't happen but hopefully um, it's the women that lead these films um, and you know, particularly when it comes to Scream 6 that it is a female led 
um, ensemble with Courtney Cox, Melissa Barrera, um, Jenna Ortega, and then um, Jasmine Savoy-Brown, Hayden Panettiere is coming back, which is another big pull as she was the breakout star from the four. She's you know, very well known. Um, and I think that that, again, can't be overstated, the importance of that, particularly when someone of Courtney Cox, uh, uh, Courtney Cox's age, who is leading a major ho- like horror Hollywood film, um being put front and center um and is i think it's broken the record of the most um consecutive performances in a film franchise by a female actor in all six consecutive consecutive films um but the reason that i wanted to mention this one as well is that this film despite it being really you know positive for lots of the reasons i've just mentioned with the representation of women in this particular genre um was con- was controversial because of uh, why Nev Campbell wasn't returning and her issues with pay and the fact that um she you know, was very open about the fact that she didn't come back because she wasn't happy with the amount that she was offered. She would be offered more money if she was a man in charge of a franchise. If a man was in the face of a franchise, he would be offered more than she was. And she wasn't going to come back and work for less than she thought she should be paid. Um, And, you know, lots of people had different reactions to that. It's a shame that she's not there. I think the franchise will survive without her. I think it's in a way a little bit of a refresher. Would it be you know, slightly implausible for it to constantly be here that's, you know, the focus and attack. Yes, is it a shame she's not there? Yes. But is also, I think, a bit of a two fingers up to the industry. You know, I've been the backbone of this. You're not paying me enough, so I'm not coming back. Fine. Um, I think if you look at the characters in Scream as well. It's always the female characters that are the most nostalgic, the most well-remembered and the most missed. Um, Rose McGowan as Tatum completely changed how like that stock best friend character was represented on screen. You know, you weren't just excited for her to die. You know, you missed her when she'd gone. Even, you know, lesser roles like Hallie in the second film, what could have been a lesser role, I mean, was built up into, again, a really good friend character who had, you know, one of the most tense scenes um, in the sequel in the car. Um, and then, obviously, the the friendship that turned out to not to be a friendship between um, Emma Roberts and Hayden in Scream 4, and then the female characters who are brought in in the fifth film as well. And... I think when looking at the representation of women on screen, I do think that the horror genre is incredibly forward thinking and progressive. You know, if you look back in the 70s, you had um, lead actresses, lead roles in all of these landmark horror films, Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Halloween, then, you know, in the 90s, it was, I know it did last summer, The Craft and Scream. Recently, it's been Hereditary, The Conjuring, Barbarian, Bodies, 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 all of these quite forward-thinking horror films. The one common thread in that is a female lead performance. And I think because, you know, when it comes to award shows and prestige, horror is never... Um, considered to be good enough. There's been a few kind of random nominations over the years, you know, Kathy Bates for Misery, Carrie, um, Aliens is like a sci-fi horror for Sigourney Weaver, but nothing of any significance. 
when you know you look at performances like Tony Collette and Hereditary, Lupita Nyong'o in Us, um, even not a, not a horror, but still that kind of a slant of Kiki Palmer in Nope. Um, even though you have these good performances, they're just ignored because they don't have that kind of Oscar bait prestige. But the importance of women in these roles, I don't think can be ignored. So just as a little summary to the episode, I just wanted to mention, obviously, my favourite Scream and why that's such a good representation of women on screen as well. Um, so out of the um, things that I've mentioned today, things you might want to go and read about and watch. So um, Tale with Danielle Deadweiler is um, excellent if you want to go and see that. Um, I think it's still in theatres. If not, it will be on somewhere streaming, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, soon. Um, Girls 5 Ever, hilarious Netflix, Pam and Tommy on Disney Plus and obviously the Scream franchise which is available but Scream 6 is out next month. As always any thoughts or questions about this issue or any others let me know and um, email that one time podcast at yahoo.com and I will see you next week.